Hey listeners, it's Sam from Barry Community Media. Just wanted to give you uh, a quick warning that we do touch on severe mental health issues in this episode, such as depression, suicide, and addiction. This is the audio from our video, um, which is an introduction to the opioid crisis in Barrie. It's by no means meant to be listened to as a totality of the conversation. Just three people I talked to recently, and I compiled our conversations here in one place. We're going to keep the conversation going, and we want to get you involved in making this podcast or making videos about the opioid crisis. So if you are interested and passionate about this crisis, then send me an email at sam at barrycommunitymedia.ca. Okay, here's the podcast for this week. Thanks for listening. The COVID-19 pandemic isn't the only health crisis facing Canada. Since 2017, over 17,000 people have lost their lives to apparent opioid toxicity. And the crisis sparked by a toxic drug supply has worsened during the pandemic. Between April and June 2020, over 1,600 people have died to apparent opioid toxicity. And that's the highest number of deaths in that time since the crisis began. And Barrie is facing that crisis, too. In the first eight months of 2020, there were 83 confirmed and probable deaths relating to opioids in Barrie. And that's 51% higher than the previous three years. The 58 deaths between April and August that year represents the highest number of deaths in that time period in our city relating to opioids. And one way of combating the crisis is harm reduction. The Simcoe-Muskoka District Health Unit, along with many health experts, have suggested a supervised consumption site is a key aspect of harm reduction strategy. And Barry's discussion about a supervised consumption site has stretched on for years. City Council's multiple motions to wait on the decision of where to put an SCS site stretched from 2019 into 2020, with the pandemic causing a halt to that decision-making process entirely. As of now, a SCS site selection committee is considering two spots, 110 Dunlop Street West and 31 Toronto Street. According to multiple studies, SCS sites do not increase drug use, and they are not widely associated with an increase in crime in these areas. And contrary to some unfounded rumors, they're not places where people use government-provided substances. But in any discussion about the opioid crisis, human lives are the central issue. Lives are at stake, and each life lost to opioids leaves families and loved ones behind. Christine Naylor's son, Ryan, is one of the people that have lost their lives. He died from a suspected fentanyl overdose. And in a couple moments, I'll roll my interview with Christine Naylor. But I I wanted to make a couple notes first. One, I refer refer to supervised consumption sites as safe consumption sites um, a few times. And that's my error. I apologize. Next, this is an ongoing conversation that is about human lives. So we want to be clear. We're not trying to sum up the conversation here. More so, I'm rolling tapes of interviews to help orient myself, and hopefully you, in this discussion. Barry Community Media will keep bringing new voices to the table and covering this crisis. After my conversation with Christine, you'll also hear from Maya Brown. She's the Substance Use and Injury Prevention Program Manager at the Muskoka District Health Unit. Next, I'll speak with Councillor Keenan Alwyn on SCS sites, which experts say should be located within his ward. But first, here's my conversation with uh, Christine Naylor about her son, his legacy, and his experience uh, living with addiction in Barrie. As well, how his death due to the toxic drug supply has affected her life and her mission uh, going forward. Um, I was wondering, could you just um, start off by just telling me about about Ryan, um, about your son? Um, so he was amazing human being. He was, um, so intelligent and so loving and caring. Um, he was always trying to help people from like the time he was like a little boy, every time that he heard that someone needed help, he felt like it was his job to like find a way to help them. So 
uh, he was a born activist and he kind of made me into an activist because I kind of grew up in a family where it's like, you know, that's just the way life is. You just accept things as they are, right? You don't challenge the system or question things. But Ryan wasn't like that. He always like, well, why is it like this? Like we need to do something to make it better. And he wasn't afraid to challenge the system or stand up for what he believes in. And I really, really admired that about him. He was gifted. Um, writer and musician. He played so many instruments. He could just teach himself just by by ear how to play instruments. And he was he was so loving. He was uh, such a family person. That's something that he really, really wanted and breaks my heart that he never got a chance to, to be a dad because he would have been an amazing father. He was like uncle to like eight nieces and nephews that he just adored and that adored him. Like he was always like the favorite uncle that everyone wanted to play with. And when like Uncle Ryan came to a party, you knew it was going to be fun. The kids just really loved him. Um, yeah, he really, he, he was ethical vegan and an animal rights activist. He convinced me to become vegan myself. He uh, made me aware of so many different issues that I wasn't aware of. He was always fighting. Um, one of his proudest accomplishments was when he was uh, doing his master's degree. Um, at the University of Toronto and he heard about the University of Victoria's plan to uh, cull um, like over a thousand rabbits. So he used his savings, flew out there immediately and organized this whole campaign to, to save the rabbits. And uh, he was successful in relocating and finding homes for all of the rabbits. So uh, he saved the lives of over a thousand rabbits and that was something he was really, really proud of. So that was the kind of thing that Ryan just always did. If he heard that there was animals that needed help or people that needed help. He was just going to uh, do what he could to help them. And then he got sick. <laughs> so he ended up um, uh, first getting sick with his bipolar uh, disorder when he was living alone in Edmonton. He moved out there for his dream job and uh, had a bad breakup. His girlfriend that was supposed to follow him, he thought he was gonna propose to her. She never um, came and uh, that devastated him and i guess that's what triggered the bipolar he started having psychosis and he didn't really know what was happening and so started to use drugs and alcohol to cope with uh, what was going on in his mind um and we were really concerned about him we kept trying to convince him when we were having phone calls to come home but he's like no like i'm gonna finish out my contract because it was a contract job um, i just got you know like five months left to go I'll just you know finish it up and then I'll come home we tried to convince him to come home for Christmas we were gonna send him you know money for a ticket home and he said no no I can that be a waste of money because I'm coming home in a few months anyways he ended up having a suicide attempt out there and it was really scary for us because we were like you know we were in Ontario and he was in Edmonton and we thought that you know how are we going to get help for him? So the next day, my husband flew out to Edmonton because we knew if he stayed there, he would die. And then when he came here, started our um, quest to get him help <laughs> in Ontario. But because he was already actively using, his drug of choice at that time was alcohol. So anytime I tried to reach out to get help for him, he was basically just dismissed as a drunk or an addict and they they wouldn't listen to me when I told them he's using drugs and alcohol to cope with what's going on in his mind. Like I'm his mother, there's something wrong. You know, he was hearing voices. He thought that people were watching him, all this stuff, but they, we took him to RVH so many times and the, and they just dismissed him. They wouldn't even like admit him. Um, and when he did get admitted, it was, it was basically pointless because he'd be drugged for 72 hours and then released. And it was like, what was the point of going through all that? To have to, you have to call the police if you need help for someone that's in crisis and you're worried about them harming themselves to get them to the hospital. And not all police are trained to deal with people in um, a mental health crisis in a good way. So we've had some very bad experiences um, with the police. Um, and because of that, I, I actually speak and share our family story at um, 
crisis intervention training for uh, several police departments and stuff like that. So that gives me hope that there are police officers that want to do a better job and they know that they come into contact with people that are in crisis all the time. Um, but it's kind of just the luck of the draw. And so as a family member of someone that has mental illness, it's very scary when you have to pick up the phone and call the police because you don't know which officer is going to come. But uh, something that I learned after we got connected with CMHA is to always ask for um, CIT trained officer, or crisis intervention trained officer. So I think that's really important for families to know. And in Barrie, we now have a COAST team. So that's where like a mental health um, worker, like a social worker and a police officer respond together. The only thing is that that program is not 24 seven. So they're not always having that program available to respond to calls. So um, yeah, it was really hard getting help for Ryan. And I honestly feel like we never really did get the help for him that he needed. Um, and that's part of the reason why he's gone because um, trying to, to get him into a treatment program was basically like impossible because of his concurrent disorder. There's only two treatment programs in Ontario that uh, are equipped to deal with people with um, concurrent disorders. A lot of the other ones say they, they don't have the like training to deal with people with uh, mental illness or also you can't come there if you're on any type of medication. But if you have a mental illness like bipolar, you, you need to be on your medication. So um, that was a huge struggle. Also, um, like the wait list for those um, places are so long. You need, we need to have more beds that are available to people that need them when they need them. I mean, someone says, I need help now, then there needs to be a bed now. It can't be six months or a year down the line. Uh, Ryan was on the wait list for Georgian Wood, which is one of those two programs that I told you about. Uh, he was on the wait list for like over six months. And finally, they said they had a bed for him. He was so excited. He had been going to NA at that time. I just found his chips the other day. He had his two month uh, chips of uh, two months of uh, being sober and clean. And then they found out that he had an outstanding charge before the court. And they said, you can't come now. They won't accept anybody that has an outstanding um, charge before the court. So Ryan still has the outstanding charges before the court, but he's dead. And that was like two years ago that he was refused that that bed. To me, I feel that's kind of like a violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedom because uh, you're, you're innocent till proven guilty and to deny somebody medical treatment, life-saving medical treatment because they have, uh, you know, a, a charge is wrong. And so those are the kind of things that I feel like now I have to bring awareness to and stand up for justice for because there are so many laws and policies and the system is so broken. And I was actually, uh, I got connected with a few other mothers that have lost their children in similar circumstances. And I was listening to one mother that um, a speech she had sent me that she had given and she's like, we all talk about how the system is broken, but it's not broken, it's built this way. It's not built to help people because then they would have to put more money in it and they would have to invest more in helping people that have mental illness and substance use issues. And let's be honest, their lives are not valued as uh, worthy of that. And so that makes me angry. I've been very angry since uh, Ryan's passing but I've been trying to channel that anger into action because that's what Ryan would want me to do. Ryan was an activist, even when he got sick and he was struggling to stay alive every day himself, he was still trying to bring awareness to issues that people wanted to ignore, like police accountability because he had some bad encounters with the police and um, issues of mental health and all the barriers to getting help and issues for people with substance use. And, and he was a big advocate for getting the supervised consumption site in Barrie. And the fact that people could like not think that that is something that we need in Barrie. I mean, how can you walk downtown and not think that this is something that our city desperately needs? Because Ryan didn't deserve to die and he didn't have to die. 
and he's not the only one. I was wondering for you, um, how has fighting for justice for Ryan and kind of fighting for this cause, how has that impacted you? Um, how has that kind of changed your life? Well, I feel like I was already doing it for seven years. I feel like I was fighting for my son's life to keep him alive. And right now I feel like such a failure <laughs> as a mother and uh, I feel guilty being alive and Ryan's not alive because I feel like my job as a mother was to protect him and I couldn't protect him. I couldn't protect him from the drugs and all the failures in the system and for the people that thought that his life didn't have value. And so it makes me so angry and I know that the only way that I can carry on is to fight for justice because that's what Ryan would do if he was here and I was the one that passed because of some, you know, system failures. He would be fighting for me as hard as he could. And I don't know why God chose it to happen this way, why Ryan is gone and I'm still here. But there's a reason for that. And so I have to just continue on Ryan's fight because it's too late to save his life. But there is a lot of other people that are struggling every day to stay alive. And if Ryan was here, he would be fighting for them. And so I have to fight. And that's my new purpose and my mission in life now. And I know it's the only thing that's going to keep, right now, it's the only thing that's keeping me going. It's what I get up every day. I get dressed and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do something today towards fighting for justice for Ryan and people that still have a chance to be saved. So that's what's getting me through because it's really hard to live without him. Just when I think about that, Brian's not here and I'm never going to see my son again. And I'm never going to hug him again. And I keep trying to think about the last time that I did hug him because of stupid COVID and trying to be safe and, and all of that stuff. And just breaks my heart. So I tell everybody that is out there, like, you just don't know when's the last time you're going to see somebody. And it doesn't matter if somebody's struggling. Never give up on them. Never, like you know, lose your hope because you are the only thing maybe that's keeping them going. And at least I can live with that, that I never gave up on Ryan and he never doubted that he was loved unconditionally and that I would always be there for him. And, you know, every day I saw my son and, you know, I, you know, gave him, made sure that he had everything he needed and he always knew he was loved and he could call me if it was two in the morning or five in the morning or whatever because he was struggling and he couldn't get through life on his own. And all these people in our community that are struggling, they need people to be there for them. And a lot of them, their families are not there for them anymore. So the caring people of our community need to be there for them. How do you think Ryan's story could have changed or um, other people that are dealing with the same sickness that he was, how do you think that could have changed if they had access to a safe consumption site in Barrie? Well, they, they wouldn't die of a, a toxic drug poisoning. So I prefer to say that it wasn't an overdose because he didn't take too much drugs. It was a toxic drug poisoning because the drug supply is toxic and um, you could just take the littlest amount and you don't, my, my son didn't use opiates. His drug of choice was meth. He was afraid of opiates because uh, he did use them one time and he had an overdose and someone saved his life. And um, so the, the drugs out there are so dangerous and they're even more so since COVID happened. And our governments know this and they refuse to act because safe supply needs to happen now across the country. We don't need pilot pr projects in small areas and communities to test and see if it works. It works. The drugs that are out there are killing people. And those people are people's sons and daughters and mothers and, and fathers and brothers and sisters. And our government needs to act. They've proven they can act to address a public health emergency. All levels of government, federal, provincial, municipal came together to address the COVID uh, crisis, they can do the same for the drug crisis. More people have died from like the toxic drug um, than have died from COVID across like since it began. And still we're not doing anything about it because those people, their lives have been given like less of value and it's and, wrong. And especially as you said, um, so Barry has a much higher um, opioid uh, use and death um, rate than all of Simcoe, um, Muskoka region and much of Ontario. 
why do you think there is such a pushback against um, helping people that are living with addictions in Barrie? Because of the stigma, because people think that their lives don't matter, that, you know, like, why should we help them? This is a choice. It's not a choice. My son did not choose to have bipolar disorder with psychosis. He did not choose to have substance use disorder, which is a medical condition. It is not like a moral failing. It is not some kind of choice that people make. Uh, you know, some people that have, you know, have experienced trauma, it's the only thing that helps them to get through each day. You know, so um, I feel that people have such a misunderstanding. They're uneducated and misinformed and they don't care to to know the facts or learn the facts because they don't they don't feel any connection to it and so part of my mission is and why i've shared brian's story is because i'm not going to let shame and stigma keep me quiet or back me into a corner because i'm embarrassed because people are going to judge me and think that i was a bad mother because my son died of a drug overdose no my son was a beautiful human being. He came from a loving family, as do many, many, many people that are suffering from, you know, substance use issues and, and mental illness. It wasn't anybody's fault. It's just a medical condition that happened, and we need to treat it. Stop treating it like a criminal issue. We need to decriminalize. We need to treat it like a public health emergency that it is, and all levels of governments need to work together. Um, in Barrie, there's a lot of like, <laughs> our, our council is very conservative and uh, they voted um, against the safe consumption site the last time. And I fear that it's going to happen again and we're going to lose more lives. And uh, I think that the, the way that we have of changing the public opinion and getting support is by people like myself sharing their personal stories. So people can see these are not just numbers. These are real people. They had lives that were valuable, that had meaning. They were contributing members of society. They were loved members of families and their loss means something. So it's been hard because I've been trying to reach out. It's only been a few weeks now, but I've been trying to reach out to other families, see if other families would be want to come on board with me and share their stories, but there's such a stigma out there. There is so many other mom mothers in Barrie that are grieving the loss of their children, just as I am of Ryan, but they're scared to share their stories because of judgment and because of that. And that's not fair to them. It's not fair to their children. Their children's life should be honored and valued and celebrated. And I fear that they're not going to get the support that they need because they have to keep quiet and pretend and hush. And, you know, when your child has mental illness, I, I've learned this from the last seven years. Um, you know, it's not like if your child has cancer, where people going to be dropping at your door with casseroles and what can we do to help and stuff like that. People kind of tend to shy away from you. It's like it's contagious or it's like, well, this family is broken or something like that. And Some people. I mean, I've also had an amazing community. I'm a part of an amazing church that uh, has uh, just wrapped love around our family. And Ryan has like been prayed for by so many people for you know the last few years that he has been struggling. And I feel blessed by those type of people. But I feel that I do believe in the humanity and the goodness of most people. So I feel we have to share real stories in order to make people care because when you just hear 130 or 170 it's just numbers but those are not numbers those are lives those are people like ryan that are gone now that shouldn't be gone and when um when you're talking to with people or hear people talking about barry's downtown and perhaps um i, I know i read that someone's um argument against the consumption site downtown was that um, it attracts a dangerous people or there's that stigma against um, people that are living with addiction. Um, they say they don't want them near businesses or they will um, kind of prevent tourism from increasing in downtown Barrie. How do you go about those conversations or how do you speak with people that have those kind of views? So they are already in downtown Barrie. Um, you can't walk down downtown Barrie and not see that there are people that are struggling that have substance use issues and that are homeless that are just trying to find somewhere to, you know, take a little bit of shelter or stay warm or something like that. Um, 
having a supervised consumption site downtown is not going to detract from business. It's not going to make the downtown core less safe. It's actually going to make it safer. The drug use is happening downtown. It's happening in back alleys. It's happening in front of storefronts. Needles are being discarded all over the place. But a safe consumption site is going to give these people a safe place to use their drugs that they bring themselves, which is another myth that people think that they're just getting free drugs because they're not. They bring their own drugs. There's just staff there to watch them and provide them with clean needles and stuff and a place for them to discard their needles. And in the event that, you know, they do have toxic drugs, they, they can be revived. There has not been one death around the world in a supervised consumption site. So they do save lives. And it actually proves that it cuts down on crime in the cities that have them. And it saves on medical costs because the amount of times we have to call for, you know, paramedics and stuff like that and how many times people are being sent to the ER due to overdose because they're not being found until, you know, uh, a later time. Having a supervised consumption site with trained staff cuts down on all of those issues. And what about for you in the new year? Um, what are the next steps? For you in terms of fighting for Ryan's legacy and fighting for safe consumption in Barrie? Well, the first is to launch a, an, like a campaign to make people aware of um, the benefits of supervised uh, consumption and to counter the misinformation that's being spread right now. I'm hoping to connect with more families that are going to be brave enough to share their stories as well because I feel that the only way that uh, we're going to be able to make a difference uh, in people's minds is by sh like making it personal, by making it like a human thing. Um, lobbying to federal government for safe supply now and decriminalization. Um, just building a huge network of support. Our main first goal is to get the supervised consumption site uh, passed and get that up and running for our community. And um, after that, we're just gonna keep advocating for you know, people with substance use disorder, mental illness, more funding put into it. We can't separate mental health from healthcare. Like we need to put as much funding into mental health care because there's so many people suffering with it. We need more treatment beds um, for people that uh, want to get help. That's like what people are saying, oh, well, we, uh, people don't want help we're just helping them to continue using drugs but you can't get help if you're dead and not everyone has ten to twenty thousand dollars to pay for a recovery bed when their child says I want to get help now so there needs to be more beds so that when someone needs help there's a bed available for them because you can't wait six months down the road six months might be too late um, so we're hoping to start an organization in Ryan's memory and to fight for um, people with mental illness, substance use disorder, and those experiencing homelessness because the three are interconnected and you can't address one without addressing all of them. I mean, Ryan, in the last three years of his life, he lived in six different places. Um, he would get uh, evicted from places because people took advantage of his kindness and his mental illness and the fact that he wanted to, he couldn't say no to anybody he wanted to help people so he ended up like running homeless shelters from his home people would just have nowhere to stay and they would ask Ryan can I stay here and he'd be like okay and then someone else would come someone else would come and he knew what it was like and so um, he couldn't say no and I also think uh, who knows how long COVID is going to continue on but there needs to be support for people with that are struggling to stay alive during COVID. It makes me so angry that big box stores have continued to stay open through the whole pandemic and are making record profits, but services that Ryan relied on, you know, for support um, have been non-existent since COVID started. He had a daily routine and he used to go to the Busby Center every day. Like I would pick him up in the morning, I'd drop him off. He'd go there, he'd have his coffee. He, even though when he, he wasn't homeless, he just felt safe there. He felt like he fit in there. People didn't judge him. There was always someone he could talk to. And then he would go to the library 
because he was a librarian by trade. So he'd love to spend time in the library reading books and using the computers. And he'd go to his CMHA office, which was always open for the clients to just go in and drop in. They would have a room they could use with a computer. And they had cats there that Ryan loved the cats and would just go spend some time with the cats. And there would always be someone there, a counselor there that would be available for you to talk to. But COVID hit and all those things stopped. Like, how how could they stop? Like, I don't understand that. To me, I feel that's a failing of our system because people are struggling to stay alive and they need those supports more than I need Costco or Walmart to still be open, you know? So I think that we have to advocate and we need to make some changes about that too because this is our new reality and our new norm, but we still have to support the people that need our help the most. If you could... Um, like be in front of Barry City Council right now and, and tell them one thing or ask them one question, what would you want to get across to them? That my son, uh, his life had value and meaning and their vote, they voted against a life-saving uh, you know, facility and that I want them to think about Ryan before they make the next vote and think about all those other, not numbers, but lives that were lost since they last voted no to this. Well, thank you again so much for speaking with me. Um, I, I just really appreciate your time and also um, just for sharing this, this mission that you're on and, and Ryan's story. We'll be right back with more conversation and more discussion after this short break. After speaking with Christine, I wanted to talk to people doing the research that she mentioned, people that have done the research into the opioid crisis and how it's playing out in Barrie. Here's a little bit of my conversation with Mia Brown, who's the acting manager of the Simcoe-Muskoka District Health Unit's Substance Use and Injury Prevention Program. As you could hear in our interview, one solution she mentioned was the SCS site as far as harm reduction strategies. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about that conversation. So I called up Mia Brown, who's the Substance Use and Injury Prevention uh, Manager at the Simcoe Muskoka District Health Unit. Now, um, I apologize for the scratchy sound in this recording, um, but it's really good stuff. And um, I really appreciated uh, her time on this call. Because it seems like the, the science and um, the research and also the suggestions by the, the Simcoe-Muskoka District Health Unit are pretty clear about the, the usefulness and the effectiveness of supervised consumption sites. Um, how do you deal with people that are still opposed to those sites or people that are worried about the impact it might have in their community? As part of the application process to the Ministry of Health and Health Canada, we as applicants, along with CMHA, Simcoe Branch, um, recognize the need to engage our community in community consultations on the sites that we are looking at to pursue for a, for a proposed site in Barrie. Um, so we recognize the importance of engaging our community in, in a variety of ways. In October of this year, we did conduct a survey online for anyone who lives, works, goes to school, or owns a business in Barrie. Um, that survey ran from October 7th to the 30th, um, and we had, I think, over 1,200 responses from the community um, related to the two proposed sites that we have moved forward with. Um, we also recognize the need to engage our partnerships in the community. We have a supervised consumption site, site selection advisory that formed in September of 2019 that has a number of stakeholders at that table, including uh, treatment services, health services, social services, um, members of the community that have an interest in, in the site. Um, we also have businesses that are represented at that table, 
So there are a number of stakeholders that we, and as well as the Barry Police, sorry, um, we, we do engage a number of those stakeholders on an ongoing basis through those meetings. Um, we also recognize that there's an importance to um, engage the local community where the sites, the proposed sites are. And so in the new year, we do plan to engage the anyone who lives or owns a business within a 250-meter radius of the two proposed locations. Those will be online virtual consultations that will be conducted through a third party that we've hired um, to conduct the to facilitate the the virtual consultations as well as complete the analysis and report writing of those sessions. Could you kind of summarize why um, you feel it's important to have the sites in the downtown? According to our data that we've collected from um, our hospital reports on ED visits related to opioid overdoses, um, we know that the area within Ward 2 has a higher concentration of ED visits um, compared to the rest of the areas within the city. We also know that paramedic data identifies that there are a higher concentration of uh, overdoses occurring in that area, as well as we have community partners who work very closely with people who use substances who identify that their clients reside and are overdosing in areas within Ward 2. Other than harm reduction and other than um, supervised consumption sites, what other pillars of the strategy are important to consider when addressing the root causes of addiction? As you know, we have the Simcoe Muskoka opioid strategy that operates in our region. Um, it does involve uh, community partner collaboration um, among the different pillars of prevention, harm reduction, treatment, enforcement, and emergency response services. So within those pillars, we all um, address the, the needs of our communities within the region to address the overdoses that we're witnessing, the toxic supply, um, the needs of the um, the, the clients that um, are seeking treatment and other mental health supports. Um, we also recognize that prevention is important. And so the work that we do is, you know, definitely addresses the root causes when we work with schools and with uh, community partners to address um, the social determinants of health and the needs of families and children through different initiatives like the Alberta Family Wellness Initiative, um, and, and talking about um, adverse childhood events with community partners and really promoting the need for any organization that works closely with families to recognize that um, early years um, are very important in the development of a child's brain um, and that we need to acknowledge the community supports and services that are required to to really address the social determinants of health for families, which will you know provide them with better health outcomes in the end. Both sites that experts say a supervised consumption site so should go in downtown Barry fall within Ward 2. That's Barry's downtown. And Councillor Keenan Alwyn um, has been a vocal advocate for supervised consumption sites in the past, and I wanted to get his perspective, as well as speaking about how he's communicating that to his constituents. Here's a little bit of our conversation. Awesome. So it seems like, to me, and I'm a relative newcomer to Barry, that social services in the downtown has been a major issue in city council and in discussions and debate among, amongst uh, people in downtown Barrie for quite some time. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you've seen that issue um, kind of play out within your time in office so far and in your constituency? Yeah, sure, so I mean, it's no secret that Barrie is facing um, both the, uh, an intense opioid crisis um, where we're seeing people die at a very alarming rate um, and we're also facing a housing and homelessness crisis. Um, we have some of the most expensive rents in the entire country. Um, we have a significant number of people who are living rough outside um, and don't have the supports, shelter, permanent housing that they need. Um, so these are issues that we're dealing with and they tend to show up in the most visible ways in downtown Barrie. Um, but to me, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what social services do, what the cause of the problem is. Um, I see a lot of people 
sort of place blame on social services for these social issues that we're seeing when they're actually the ones who are trying to solve these issues uh, the most. So uh, I think we need to be clear about what the source of the problem is, which is uh, inequality, um, poverty, mental health issues, a housing crisis, um, uh, a toxic drug supply, uh, and not you know scapegoat the people who are working hardest to solve these issues and help the most vulnerable people in our community. And it seems like on both sides of the debate, specifically about safe consumption sites, there's very vocal people and very organized groups, um, specifically like Safeberry um, advocating against the site in the downtown, and then um, a lot of other groups advocating for a site in the downtown. How do you balance those viewpoints and how do you dialogue with um, both both parties in order to kind of feel out what your constituents are, are feeling about the issue? I think we need to be clear about what the science says about supervised consumption sites. The science is clear that these sites save lives, um, first and foremost. I think that's the most important piece. Um, you know, what people can't get uh, treatment for addiction um, when they die. Um, that's the simple fact. Uh, but these sites also help in a number of different ways. We have a problem in the downtown. I live downtown. Um, so I, you know, I walk around, I see the issues that we have downtown. Um, we have an issue with discarded needles uh, in our alleyways, in doorways, in parks. Um, that's an issue that a supervised consumption site can actually uh, improve. Um, we know from peer-reviewed studies that these sites uh, can reduce the number of discarded needles, can reduce the instances of public drug use uh, in and around these sites. Um, it can reduce uh, hospital emergency visits for overdose. It can reduce uh, the transmission of bloodborne infections like HIV. Um, and that not only, um, you know, provides a more dignified life for people in our community who use drugs, but uh, it also saves our healthcare system and our justice system um, lots of money. Um, so this is a service that our public health unit uh, is saying we need, um, and they're backing that up with peer-reviewed science. And so similar to when the public health unit says uh, we need a COVID testing clinic, um, up by the hospital. Um, I don't think it's, it should be the place of politicians um, or uh, frankly anyone else in the community to question that science. We need to listen to the experts uh, and, uh, and do what it takes to save lives in our community. And I guess though people have questioned that science and people have pushed back against the idea of safe consumption sites, whether that's in community groups or even on city council. Um, what what steps do you think should be taken or what steps are you taking to kind of fight that stigma or that prejudice? Yeah, again, just talking about the science um, and the, the peer-reviewed nature of the studies that look at supervised consumption sites, um, I think I, I like to believe that people um, will trust the science as they have uh, on the whole with COVID. Obviously, there's going to be people who um, deny the science, but I think they're a small um, but perhaps vocal minority. Um, but of course, we need to do everything we can to ensure that uh, the concerns that are raised by opponents of supervised consumption sites are are addressed. So, um, you know, if we do end up getting a site in downtown Barrie, which I desperately hope we do, um, we need to make sure there are mitigation um, strategies in place uh, to ensure that, you know, the area around the site is uh, safe, uh, is kept uh, clean from discarded needles, that public drug use isn't occurring, um, and that there's a clear line of communication between business owners, people who live in the downtown, um, and just residents in general, uh, and the, uh, the operators of the site. Um, communication is key, and uh, I think if people see um, the benefits that the service brings to our downtown, then I think even the most vocal opponents um, will start to uh, support this service. And forgive me if I'm getting to you to repeat yourself, but what specifically is your role in that or city council's role in um, helping kind of guide the debate or uh, promote change in downtown Barrie in that area? Mm -hmm. So on the supervised consumption site application itself, um, I can kind of step back a bit and talk, talk a bit about that process. Uh, the province of Ontario, the uh, the uh, progressive conservative government that came into power in 2018 changed the regulations around supervised consumption sites. So they were formally called uh, overdose prevention sites and uh, they didn't require approval 
from the municipal uh, city council. Um, and that was a recognition of the fact that, you know, we're in an emergency situation here where people are dying at an alarming rate. Um, we shouldn't put up political roadblocks uh, to these types of medical services, just as we wouldn't ask our municipal council to vote on having a COVID testing center or a vaccination site uh, in our city. Unfortunately, the progressive conservative government, when they came into power, they changed those regulations to require that approval from your municipal council. Um, and that's brought a whole lot of um, messy politics into the situation. Um, so now that that approval is required, we've seen these debates at the local level um, where frankly, I don't think there should be debate. We should trust the experts, trust the science. Um, so ultimately, the application, once uh, the public consultation process uh, by the applicants is complete, uh, they'll come to City Council, ask for our endorsement of the site, um, and they'll use that endorsement in their application for funding uh, to the province uh, and the application to the federal government for the exemption under the criminal code to operate um, one of these sites. Um, I think we have a greater role as um, representatives of the community, um, as uh, you know, facilitating the communication that I talked about, the open communication between business owners, residents, uh, and the operators of the site. Um, and that's something I've been doing uh, since day one. Um, I attend meetings of the harm reduction pillar of the Simcoe-Muskoka opioid strategy, um, just as a point of information to make sure that I can communicate to my constituents what's going on, um, the latest updates in the process, and how they can get involved uh, in the engagement process as well. Um, and to be clear, that engagement process is uh, fairly extensive. Um, so the applicants, CMHA and uh, the Simcoe Muskoka District Health Unit, um, on the two proposed sites within the downtown that they've identified as viable sites. Um, they are conducting public consultations uh, online. They've done an online survey, but they'll also be conducting neighborhood consultations. Um, unfortunately, it will have to be virtual like every other consultation that's going on right now. Um, but I hope that people will take that opportunity to get involved, have their voice heard, uh, and learn a bit more about what these services provide. And what about for you in your section of Barrie? Have you received a lot of feedback or engagement from your constituents about the issue? I have, uh, absolutely. So back when City Council first voted on the original application um, for a different location um, within Ward 2, um, certainly it was a hot button issue um, and there were people speaking out on both sides of the issue. Um, but to be quite honest with you, the vast majority of people who get in contact with me about a supervised consumption site are in support. They see the need for this life-saving service um, and actually, just recently, I was contacted by a mother who lost her son um, to an overdose, and now she's devoting um, her time to fighting for this life-saving service so uh, other families don't have to go through what she went through. So when I have constituents um, who are dying, when I have constituents uh, who are losing family members, uh, that has to be a top priority, um, fighting for those people, fighting to ensure that um, some of the most vulnerable people in our community have the services that they need. Um, and I think people are really starting to understand that. Um, and that's encouraging to see. And so I've been talking with a few people that they were specifically worried about a recent story that came out um, involving the BIA and, and their proposal to kind of centralize social services and specifically um, worried about the power that that seems to uh, bestow upon them to decide how and when and where people are getting social services in Barrie. Um, and I only want you to talk about this as much as you're comfortable, but um, what's what's your opinion on that um, in these early days? I, I know the article or the proposal wasn't super clear, uh, but what's your initial opinion on that? Yeah, I definitely need to learn more about what they're proposing um, with this social service hub that they're talking about. Um, certainly it's an idea that, that's been explored in the past uh, and hasn't come to fruition um, for a number of reasons. Um, it's hard to get a bunch of different agencies with different mandates, different funding models, um, different values, different missions um, to come together uh, and organize around this specific issue. And to be frank, I'm not even clear that a social service hub is the most effective model. Um, perhaps the model we have now is, is better, but 
obviously there's always room for improvement. Um, so I think it should be up to the agencies to decide how they work together, um, where they're located, where it's most effective for them to be located. Um, where I do have a concern is that I think there are some people in the community that are um, holding up this idea of the social service hub as an excuse to delay a supervised consumption site. And to me, that is completely unacceptable. We have a moral obligation to act quickly on the opioid crisis when people are dying at an alarming rate. More people have died um, from opioid overdose and very than, than COVID-19 in 2020. Uh, when people are dying at that rate, we have to act quickly and we can't have any excuse um, to act. So if we, uh, if we wanna have a social service hub in the downtown, that's an idea worth exploring. Um, and I will let the experts uh, in those social service agencies um, have those conversations. Um, but I don't think it should be used as an excuse to delay a life-saving service in the middle of an emergency situation. And what about the decision-making power um, and the question of whether the BIA or um, the person they appoint should have the power to decide where the hub goes? Um, is that a part of the conversation that, um, that you've explored or have an opinion about? Well, certainly um, the legislative authority um, to deal with social services um, rests with the County of Simcoe, who's the service manager um, for the city of Barrie. So they manage social service funds, social housing funds, um, and the province is actually the, the funder for a lot of those services. So um, certainly the political mandate lies with uh, those two bodies. Um, I think it's you know what, it's okay for any organization in the city to get involved with a larger conversation about the issues that we're facing in our community. And I'll leave it up to the downtown BIA to, um, you know, decide whether that's within their mandate and also to explain to their membership um, that they're, you know, spending large chunks of money on a PR campaign to fight a life-saving service um, that could actually help businesses uh, in the downtown when their membership, uh, you know, small businesses, restaurants in the downtown are really struggling due to a global pandemic. Is that really the best use of money? That's for them to decide. I would prefer to see uh, their funds go into marketing the downtown as a positive place for uh, everyone in our community, uh, no matter who you are, no matter what walk of life you come from, to come and um, you know, enjoy everything it has to offer, whether that's the, the businesses and restaurants, um, the amazing public spaces, the brand new streetscape we see in our downtown. Um, I think we should be um, pumping out that message that our downtown is this uh, beautiful place uh, to come and spend your time and to connect to your community um, and you can do so uh, safely as well with the measures, the public health measures that have been put in place. Uh, I'm not sure it's the most effective use of, uh, you know, small business dollars um, to be fighting a life-saving service at this time. Well, I think that's all the questions I have for now. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on and we're definitely going to continue the discussion. So I'm sure you might hear from us again uh, in the new year. Okay, awesome. Perfect. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. crisis doesn't go away when we stop talking about it on podcasts or in news stories. So we want to make sure you know that at Barry Community Media, we aren't viewing this as a story to be told and then moved on from. We want to keep the conversation going, and over the next few weeks and months, we'll be producing more content about the opioid crisis, trying to talk to as many people as possible. Thanks for listening to the podcast this week, and as always, get in touch with feedback, criticism, questions, and more. We want to hear from you, and we want your help crafting the future of community news in Barrie.